0: The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. When I got my Keurig Brewer, I loved it so much I decided to name it. The right name had to fit my many sides from the bold dark roast side to the soft herbal tea side. I landed on Freddy. Yeah, Freddy. It works for me.
1: Who doesn't love their Keurig Brewer? It can brew the perfect cup of coffee, tea, and hot cocoa with just the touch of a button. All without a fuss and so little mess or cleanup. With over 250 varieties to choose from, it's no wonder people actually name their Keurig brewers. Visit Keurig.com for more info.
2: And I'm very honored to have as my very special guest and friend, Jerry Springer. Jerry, welcome to A Current Life. Jim, it's great to be with you again. This is this Well, is fun. <laughs> I appreciate your making the time to join us today. I will tell our audience that I kind of had to coerce Jerry slightly because he's so incredibly busy with so many things. So I sent him a probably a 35-year-old picture of Jerry and I and, and Bob Dylan, which we'll talk about later in the show. But, uh <laughs> You haven't it's changed all, one It's already background. hanging up on the wall. It's already hanging up. <laughs> well, I'm glad. Listen, for our listeners, I'd like to give a little, uh, obviously, give a proper introduction. Throughout Jerry's career, he's become a cultural and civic icon. In addition to hosting the Jerry Springer Show, he has been the mayor of Cincinnati, political pundit, lawyer, Emmy Award-winning newscaster, game show host, a country recording artist, international MC, and TV personality. He has been in movies and on Broadway. He's a progressive talk radio broadcaster. And recently, he won America's Heart on Dancing with the Stars. This show is about life's journey and the ups and the downs that we all have to overcome along the way. So on that note, I'd like to start, Jerry, with your early years when you moved at the age of five from London to escape the Holocaust to New York.
3: Yeah, I was – well, my – much of my family was exterminated uh, in the camps during World War II in Germany and Poland and Austria. And uh, but my parents, um, you know survived it all. They got out of Germany literally two weeks before Hitler went into Poland to start World War II. The rest of the family didn't get out, and they were the ones, obviously, that died. But my parents got out two weeks before and got to England, uh, where a month later my sister was born, and a few years later I was born during the war. And uh, so I was that's how I was born in England. Then when I was five, I found out I couldn't be king, so uh, I said, we're getting out of here. <laughs> no. so, so my parents bought uh, my, you know, four tickets on the Queen Mary, and in 1949, we sailed over to America to start, you know, my parents had lost everything, of course, and uh, but to start life over, and we so I grew up in New York, and my dad made stuffed animals and toys, and you know, uh, was a jobber or a vendor to sell these items. My mom got a job as a clerk in a bank and uh it's the uh it's the great American uh immigrant story of you know, coming over from oppression to uh the great opportunities America offers. And you know, in the beginning they didn't speak English that well. Uh, and uh but they worked hard uh, to make sure that my sister and I would get a college education and and the result is in one generation my family went from extermination to this ridiculously privileged life I live today because of my silly show so I know the American dream works because
2: I've been fortunate enough to live it as you you know as you talk about that and 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 I'm familiar with a lot of it because we've known each other for over three decades I, I will tell you that uh, obviously, it, it had such an incredible uh, effect on 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 your outlook on life and your perspective, and you know, both spiritually and, and just in so many different ways. Do you have certain memories that stand out for you that kind of shaped your thinking and and kind of the things that you believe in so passionately today, and that I've watched you through your, you know, the- well. It, do at least for me, the family experience of the, of the Holocaust and
3: everything that came from that um, probably, at least in my case, explains my, uh, my liberalism. Um, it explains my uh, political uh, outlook and why I'm so fervent about it. It's probably, other than my family, the one thing I take seriously in life. I mean, I, I realize I make my living in show business, but that isn't my life. What I really work hard at is is, is the political side of me, and uh, I'm still very active in that. And it, it's my liberalism it defined it. Uh, I still remember as a child growing up every night at dinner, my parents and my sister and I, every single night we would have to – tell one story that we read about in the newspaper and then talk about it. Now, obviously, when I was a little boy, the only thing I read in the newspaper was the sports pages and see how the Yankees <laughs> did that night. But my parents said, that's okay. You know, and as I started to get a little bit older, they, I started to move into other sections of the newspaper. And so all of a sudden, the thing that grabbed our hearts was the civil rights movement because – You know, obviously the details were different, but the idea of discrimination uh, was the same, whether you're talking about exterminating Jews or enslaving blacks or, you know, whatever the group is. You know, um, in a sense, uh, you know, anybody can be the subject of prejudice, and it's never excusable, and the discrimination of the civil rights movement That was really my first out of body experience in terms of getting involved in something that wasn't just for my own benefit. And so I was active in the civil rights movement through college and law school and then got active in the anti-war movement. And, uh, my first job out of law school was working for Bobby Kennedy. And because back in 1967 and 68, you know, Vietnam seemed to be everything. So I got very active in that, and um, then when Bobby was killed, I I bummed around for a few months, and finally, you know, I had been offered a, a job with a Cincinnati law firm. So I moved to Cincinnati, took the Ohio bar and passed, it, and I started practicing law. But literally a few months after I arrived, I was still so ticked off about the war that in 1970, I was uh, 25 at the time. I uh, decided to run for the United States Congress in Cincinnati as an anti-war candidate, and probably in the weirdest circumstance of all, you know, I had obviously no chance of of winning. No one knew who I was and that kind of thing. They just, what they did know was I was this this kid from New York with a thick New York or Eastern accent uh, speaking out against the war, but... What happened was the primary in 1970, the Democratic primary for Congress, was May 5th, 1970. That has relevance because May 4th, 1970, the day before, was Kent State. And the oh, my day God. When, when the, um, right. from the National Guardsmen uh, killed sure. those four students at Kent State in Ohio. And that kind of like just blew up the country in a sense. And next day, I am convinced that the reason I won the Democratic primary is there was such outrage at what had happened at Kent State that the next day they voted for me um, to be the Democratic candidate for Congress. And that's how I became known in Cincinnati. One of the things I remember, which is an ironic twist, the fellow I was running against in the Democratic primary was a very nice man. His name was Vernon Bible. So the headline uh, the next day was Springer Slashes Bible, (laughs) which – You know, (laughs) it's perfect for this
2: community. (laughs) Yeah, but anyway,
3: so I won the Democratic primary, and that's how I got to be known. And it, you know, the general election turned out to be, even though it was a Republican district, a very close election, and and that's how I got to be known. And then the next year, um, I was elected to the Cincinnati City Council, and and a few years later became, you know, the mayor. And so it really took off from there. But. You know, my early background is, I think, what um, defines and forms my liberalism, that you should never, ever, ever judge people based on uh, what they are, but only on what
2: they do. What let, me I mean you, that, let me ask you a ahead. question. As I think back, as one of my first uh, positions, and I went to a very radical school at University of Wisconsin, and, uh, oh, yeah. you know, between 66 and 70, and, and I worked yeah. for Bobby... Uh, as well on the campus before he was assassinated. Yeah. That assassination, obviously King's and obviously John F. Kennedy's, were just, you know, you know where you were when that happened. It had such an impact on our generation. And I'm curious, as you look back and think about these things and how they shaped you and what your, what your passion was uh, in politics and how you really changed the landscape, especially in, in our area here in Ohio um, and around the country. What what was going through your mind at that time when when all those things were happening and and how you saw yourself being shaped?
3: Well, it's interesting when you're in the middle of it; it's pretty hard to take the long view. But um, certainly, 1968 was. With the later exception, I'd say, of, of the day of 9 11, but the whole year of, of uh, 1968 was the most politically traumatic um, year in my lifetime uh, because it, it seemed they were every day or every week there was another shock. <laughs> Um, it started in, in uh, early February with the uh, Ted Offensive. Then all of a sudden, Gene McCarthy almost beat Lyndon Johnson in the New Hampshire right. primary. Then Bobby Kennedy enters the race, wins the primaries. Then uh, in April, oh, wait, at the end of March, uh, shock of all shocks, Lyndon Johnson on a Sunday night tells the nation that he's not going to run for re-election. And, you know, which kind of took the wind out of the whole anti-war movement because we were all running against Lyndon Johnson, in a sense, to stop the war. All of a sudden, he drops out. Uh, A week later, Martin Luther King is assassinated. Two months later, Bobby Kennedy is assassinated. Two months after that, you had the riots at the Democratic Convention. Convention in Chicago, and then two months after that, or three months after that, in an ironic bit of fate, I guess uh Richard Nixon is elected president, and it was like every you know it was unbelievable you literally got nervous each night, turning on the news. Uh, because you never know what is going to happen now. And everything seemed more disastrous than the thing before. And with the riots in the cities and what was going on in Vietnam, it really looked as if we were unraveling. And it was a very unsettling time period. So. Kind of thing, which is perhaps different then than different than all the stuff that is going on today. Today, there's still a lot of discussion among young people, as there should be, about what are they going to do with their lives, what is their you know future career, uh, economically, what's going to happen, uh, which is understandable. But back. When we were in college and law school or whatever school and just getting out of it, when we were at the 20 somethings, it wasn't a matter of, gee, what kind of, what am I going to do for career? I remember the first day of class, whether it was in college or in law school, the dean would always say, take a look to your left and take a look to your right. The chances are one of you won't be around the next year or so. Because everyone was being drafted into Vietnam, and we all knew people, our friends, who were killed, or it would be us that would be killed or maimed or whatever. In other words, so politics wasn't just a hobby or something that you had an interest in. It was life. Even our music was political, if you think— Speaking of that Dylan picture you mentioned earlier, if you think of what our music was during that period of time, it was all political, whether it was Bob Dylan, Peter, Paul, and Mary, uh, you know, everybody, it, um, Donovan, all these uh, these folk singers at the time. That was—and then the rage of the Rolling Stones or the Beatles, whatever. It was real, and, and back, we weren't thinking about, gee— What kind of job am I going to have? We were thinking, are we going to be alive, you know, or will war be the rest of our life? And that, you know, that made it a totally different time period. You know,
2: I often think about this, and I want to see if you agree. You know, uh, there—I happen to be the—I think it was the first year that the lottery was put into effect, and so there were about twenty of us in our our apartment. At I was in—I think I was a senior at University of Wisconsin, and. In the room, two or three of us got high lottery numbers, like over 300 or whatever it was. And the rest of the people in the room got very low numbers. And I remember looking around the room, and it really had a major effect on me because I felt, number one, huge guilt. I mean, I just felt it because why was I getting a high number and not going? And these other people were going to either go or or go to Canada or, or, or protest. And, you know, I'm curious. There was a tremendous fallout. In America, uh, a, a almost like a malaise that set in, that, that carried over. And I say it today when I think about the military. You know, we were very anti-military. We were very anti-Vietnam. We were very anti almost anything having to do with mainstream society. And yet today, when you watch the military and, and, and what they take on, it's completely shifted the other way, in my opinion. In other words, you know... I agree with you. I agree with you. And and, and that's that's a good observation. And what makes...
3: The, there are two consequences to this. First of all, there's a maturity that goes along with... We realize the incredible sacrifice these people are making. Uh, they volunteer. Now, admittedly, an asterisk has to be put by that volunteer because when you take a look at our military today, overwhelmingly uh, they are—they're not rich people. Overwhelmingly, they don't come from rich families. So, for okay. a lot of the young men and women that have volunteered initially, they come out of high school and volunteer because that's the best shot they're going to have of, you know, assuming they survive a war, um, of having, you know, financially some type of. a a life, you know, that has some uh, economic value to it. So that drives them into that as an option. Uh, You don't find too many kids from rich families saying, well, I'm not going to go to med school. I won't go to law school. I won't become this, that, or the other. Um, You know, I'm joining, I'm going to join the military instead. There are a few, but not a lot. So there's that. But having said that, the young men and women that do volunteer for the military are a tremendous sacrifice to their lives, to their uh, to their families, to the worries. Uh, you know, so the debt we owe them is is just unbelievable, and we see the great job that they do. Uh, but what you've noticed, and we've seen it with Iraq, certainly with the Iraq War, it was the the most obvious. Um, display of it. With Vietnam, everyone was being drafted. Certainly in the early days, there was a draft, period. So there was tremendous opposition initially to the war because it affected everyone. We were all right. going, and no one quite understood what this was all about. Now, you know, 40 years later, 50 years later, we've got Iraq. Or, or, or it was forty years later, later when we first went into Iraq, there wasn't a draft. So therefore, and and we also had an administration that said, "Don't worry, uh, you won't have to pay for this war." You know, we're not we're not going to raise your taxes. In fact, we'll lower them. We're gonna, you know, this war will be free. We'll let our children and grandchildren pay for it, but you're not going to have to pay for it. And that's what we were getting out of the administration. So there wasn't a much. Official outcry because what the heck? None of you didn't have to, the campuses protesting and everything because if you didn't like the war, number one, you didn't have to go, and right. number two, you didn't have to pay for it. And so we don't—we didn't have the political awareness with the buildup in Iraq that we did with Vietnam, when every family, whether they liked it or not, was involved. And, and I think that's been the great difference. Doing away with the draft, in fact, undercut any kind of protest, and it gave uh, an, an administration a blank check in terms of fighting the
2: war. No, I agree with you. I think you know when you know, you know volunteerism is a lot different than being uh, forced into something that one you don't agree with, and two you don't even understand. And it's never really been declared a war. I think you exactly. know the people, you know the people that went there i I oftentimes think about how much they went through you know and and how they had to deal with coming home and 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 the uncertainty of really what they were a part of I, I i feel strongly that you know our lives were shaped, and obviously maturity changes things and years change things. but I do think there's a lot of parallels, and I think some of that caught on in the Iraq situation because there was a lot of a lot of people opposed to going into iraq I mean you know whether or not you some people thought you should or not whatever. You know, it was a, there was a certain parallel, wasn't there, between that and, and the Vietnam, yeah, just from the standpoint took, of it, the war. It, it took it took longer to come about. Now, admittedly,
3: part of that was because of nine uh, eleven, and mm-hmm. then you know when you start hearing uh from the administration back in 01 and '02, I mean 02 03 04 that oh my god we got to do this because he has weapons of mass destruction and we're going to have another 911 and all that the fear of it all made it easier for us to believe that what the administration at that time was telling us was the truth you know it was it was not until we figured out hey wait a second they're not telling us um, you know, this, uh, that all of a sudden this resistance, because remember, uh, Lush got reelected. So right. even as late as '04, we, you know, most of the country was going along with this. Now, admittedly, by the end of his second term, everyone realized it was a scam, and, you know, then, you know, now everyone was against the war. Right. But it, it took time. Uh, you know, with Vietnam, uh, it was the draft starting in 65 that all of a sudden started building up because, you know, every, every time you went to the post office, you know, were you going to get your notice? And every mother, you know, was, you know, I won't say panic, but boy, was it on their mind? You'd go to sleep. If you had a young son at that time, it was more sons than daughters. Um, but you know, if you had a child who was all of a sudden of draft age, you know, every day going to the mailbox was scary. It was yeah. scary, and it's it's hard to for people that didn't live through that. Um, it, it's Understand hard it. to relate to them. But mm-hmm. you know, they, they got to know that part of the great opposition to the Vietnam War
2: uh, came about because of the draft. Let me let me uh, shift uh, gears with you for a second. And and obviously, you served as mayor in Cincinnati, and then following that. You um took actually the uh uh an NBC affiliate, WLW and, and took it from last to first uh as a um as as the uh, political reporter, commentator and and newscaster and, and, and news anchor. Uh you you created uh, you became Cincinnati's number one news anchor. And then in nineteen ninety seven, uh I believe that's right, or w- when did you debut the Jerry Springer show? When, what year the- was that?
3: The, the show started in uh September of 91. Uh, okay. We're in our 22nd year now. That's when that started wow. and yeah, good lord, that went crazy.
2: <laughs> Unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah. But you know, uh, yeah, y- the show you know, did not <laughs> You know, you think about I mean, I, I was trying to think about this when I was researching and, and preparing for the show uh because I was so honored that you would agree to come on the show because I've known you for so long and I, I couldn't think of anybody that has had the uh, immense amount of exposure and different, just the diversity within your career and has maintained the kind of, uh, of uh, I mean, people are fascinated by you and people are, are uh, you know, when they heard you were coming on the show, I mean, the calls I got and the people that wanted to call in with questions, I we stopped taking questions a little while back because it just took up too much time. But basically, you have, have kind of transcended so many different aspects uh, in one's life. So my question is, when you shifted from politics to the show, what was going on in your head at that time? Because you never have left politics. In fact, one of the great Things that I wish you would do is come back into politics because I remember I was part of your original governor's campaign when you were going to run for governor. Oh, I remember you there. I at M- Union remember General. the first meeting yeah. that we had with it's- Jerry, me, you, and Bernie, and Bernie sends his yeah. love to you. So it's, uh, yeah. tell me about that shift.
3: Well, um, it, it's funny. When those decisions come about, you're not necessarily taking the long view. I always knew that. Politics would never be the way that I would make a living. Um, that those were two separate things. I treat politics. kind of like you treat like I treat my religion. It's something I believe in. It's something I'm passionate about, but I never view it view it as a profit center. In fact, being in politics costs you money. you don't make money, uh, at least if you're honest. And uh, so it, it was never, to that extent, it was never either or. I realized that I have a family now and I have to make a living. So, uh you know, I was offered these jobs and I was offered the job to anchor the news in Cincinnati. And, you know, it seemed like a good job offer and I would get to do a commentary at the end of every newscast, and I so at least the subject matter would be what I was used to and what I enjoyed. Um, so it just turned out to be a great job. I admit, when I first started doing it, I thought, well, I'll do it for a couple of years, and then I'll run again. Uh, but it just seemed that the longer I kept doing the news, the more I got into it and really enjoyed it and thought with my commentaries that that was my political outlet. Um, I just kept doing that. And then – but I still remained politically active. I just wasn't running for office. And then after 10 years of that, the company that owned the station where I did the news, uh, Multimedia, they also owned talk shows. That was a sheer coincidence. They happened to own Phil Donahue, Sally, Jesse Raphael, a bunch of other shows. And so one day um, the CEO of Multimedia – People in Cincinnati might remember him, a fellow named Walter Bartlett, wonderful gentleman. He took me to lunch one day, and in the middle of the lunch, he says, "By the way, Phil's getting Phil Donahue is getting close to retirement, so we're going to start another talk show, and you're going to host it." So it wasn't like I auditioned or I tried out or this is something I always wanted to do. I was assigned to it because I was an employee. Now they adjusted the pay and all that, but it was clearly an assignment, and I. Never viewed it as, gee, this is going to be my career because, in fact, I didn't give up doing the news for the first year and a half. um, I did both. I would get up in the morning, fly to Chicago, take the show, and then in the afternoon fly back to Cincinnati and do the news because I had to do the news every night at 536 and 11. And, well, this got to be old after a while, and finally then I decided, okay, I'll. looks like the show has legs and possibilities, so I gave up the news and that's when the show took off but uh so it wasn't like i'm making a decision i'm never again going to run for political office it was just that this was a career path for making a living which was separate from my
2: political activities which never stopped i just don't run for office now but i'm still as active as ever let me ask you. Uh, we're we're going to take a short break, and when we come back, I want to talk about some of those moments on the show, and also about uh, America's Got Talent, and, and then of course your stint on the um, uh, dancing. I want to I want to hear about that, and then talk a lot about the political environment today. Uh, this is Jimmy Gould. Uh, welcome. Uh, we're going to take a short break. Uh, uh, the show is sponsored by SmartWater. I'm here with my very special friend Jerry Springer. Please stay tuned.
1: The internet's number one talk station number one talk station VoiceAmerica.com.
3: the stove the refrigerator all the pots and pans the sink sure take the kitchen sink too yeah pretty much everything in the kitchen i could live without if i had to except of course my keurig brewer
1: who doesn't love their keurig brewer it can brew the perfect cup of coffee tea and hot cocoa with just the touch of a button all without a fuss, and so little mess or cleanup. With over 250 varieties to choose from, it's no wonder your Keurig brewer's the favorite thing in your kitchen. Visit Keurig.com for more info.
0: When I got my Keurig brewer, I loved it so much I decided to name it. The right name had to fit my many sides, from the bold dark roast side to the soft herbal tea side. I landed on Freddy. Yeah, Freddy. It works for me.
1: Who doesn't love their Keurig Brewer? It can brew the perfect cup of coffee, tea, and hot cocoa with just the touch of a button. All without a fuss and so little mess or cleanup. With over 250 varieties to choose from, it's no wonder people actually name their Keurig Brewers. Visit Keurig.com for more info. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com.
0: You're listening to A Current Life with Jimmy Gould. If you have a question or comment for Jimmy or his guest today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. If you'd like to send an email, the address is at yahoo.com. Now, back to the program. Welcome back to A Current
2: Life, sponsored by Smartwater. I'm here with my very special friend and guest, Jerry Springer. Uh, Jerry, what uh, we've been talking in the last segment about uh, kind of the transition from politics into newscasting into uh, the Jerry Springer Show, which has now run for 23 years, uh, which is a remarkable thing. Can you kind of point to one or two moments on that show, which is so hugely popular, that just stand out in your mind that you'll just, you know— never forget, and maybe that just, just even shocked you, maybe?
3: Well, uh, I can't I can't tell you, because it'd be disingenuous for me to tell you that anything on the show ever really shocked me. And the reason <laughs> I say that is I don't think you can be a grown-up in today's world and be shocked by anything you've ever seen on our show. In other words, you may be shocked that something that you see on the show happen to someone in your family or someone you know. Right. That could be shocking. But there's no event. In living in today's world, there's no circumstance where if you're an adult, you would say, I never heard about something like that. I never knew that existed. Because if you think about it, I can open up any newspaper in America on any given day, and by the time I reach page three, um, I've got 20 shows. Uh, you know, we have lived through everything. I mean, in my lifetime, we've lived through Holocaust, World Wars, assassinations, nine eleven uh, scandals. Uh, you know, what what possible circumstance could happen that you today I never knew something like that happened? So, the honest answer is no. I've never been so shocked by something that happens on the show. And I said oh, my gosh, does that really occur? You know, uh, so that's the honest answer. Now, it is surprising, at least in the early days, that people would talk about these things. And we had never seen these things on television before. And I think part of that is because about the time before our show came along, it's pretty fair to say that American television was – virtually all upper-middle-class white. In other words, that is the perspective that American television showed you. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that perspective. That's how I was raised, upper-middle-class white, or at least middle-class white. Um, But there are other perspectives. There are other lives in America as well. Not everyone is upper-middle-class white. In other words, back then, if you were African American, for example, you had to be a doctor living in the suburbs, like Cosby. But otherwise, you were delegated to a one of the side networks. But the major networks, everything was whether it was Friends, Seinfeld, um, uh, Frasier, uh, Match, whatever the shows are. It always was a bunch of well scrubbed-looking white people. And now our show came along, and all of a sudden, we started to see people that had a different description, but they're Americans. They they live lives like everybody else, except their language isn't as good. Maybe they didn't do as well in the gene pool of parents. Um, you know, maybe they weren't lucky to be born with a great brain or great health. But they're like everyone else. What I have found in doing this show for 22 years is we're all alike. Just some of us dress better and got luckier, you know, from birth. But it's not as if these, these people are like everyone else. They want to be happy, they get angry or depressed when they're not. Their response is sometimes more physical or the language not as good, so they don't speak the Queen's English. But they're no less valuable. Look, You know, you can go into the richest neighborhoods where the people have the best education. And believe me, their private behavior is no better than the people on my show. And that happens to be God's truth. And that's what I have learned. Just because you're richer doesn't make you morally superior.
2: You know, we're all alike. Some of us just are luckier. it's It's a great observation, first of all. I, I would expect that coming from you because of your passion for people and your your understanding as you started, when we started the show, about just kind of how this world works. And and you really do like people and people really do like you. And, and I feel very similar to you that we're all connected. Uh, we may be connected in strange ways. We may look different. We may, you know, but I mean, we all kind of want the same thing. I mean, this show is really about the journey and it's not about just talking to people who are successful it's really about the journey that they take in life and the higher or the greater meaning of what someone's life is and the ups and the downs that people go through when we all hit up and down we all have tragedies in our lives and we all have moments when we're you know kind of forced against the wall to to kind of find that 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 power within ourselves which i mean to me is is a deep spiritual power that's just how i look at it i you know uh Yep. So, you know, my my view uh, of this is I, I agree with you. I, I do think it's entertainment. I do think it's show business. And I do think that that people are fascinated by it. And there's a lot of reality TV today, which, which you know, has uh, kind of taken over the airwaves. And, and I think it's because people want to learn about what other people are doing and how people are surviving and how people are going through it. You know, I am curious about one thing, and that is – there seemed to be, and this, and I may be wrong about this, that people didn't actually think that the people that, and this is just somewhere I read this, uh, were, were all real people and that they weren't actors. I'm sure you heard that. I mean, because sure. you had such a strange. Thing. I mean, how did you deal with that aspect? Because you know, I never looked at it like that. I just figured these were everyday people and, and living living lives, you know, just differently. I mean, or yeah. maybe the same, but just you know, handling it differently. Well, I think well, because we had not seen
3: this kind of behavior on television before, obviously the first thing you assume is that, oh, gosh, these people are acting. If you come to a show, you will never ask that question again because you will see the intensity of their responses. Um, but it- you know, and obviously the lawyers are all over it, so, you know, people come on and make up the story. Unless it's an obvious spoof show, you know, like it's some weird right. holiday shows where we're obviously doing a spoof. But if it's a, you know, a regular show, you know, the lawyers are all over it. People get sued if they're making up the stories. I mean, so it's all checked out. and I mean, but the truth is it doesn't even matter. I mean, I wouldn't care. Um, but the show has to be real because that's what the rules are. Um In order to get on the show, under the contract, uh, the stories have to be real, and they have to be outrageous. In other words, if you call us with a warm, uplifting story, we're not allowed to run it. Uh, We have to send you to another show, and we are given a list of shows we can send you to. Uh, So that's the rules under the contract. So I can't go in any day when they hand me a show and say, oh, you know, I'm not going to do this. I want to do a show about the impact of inflation on the world bond market. They'll say, well, thank you very much, Jerry, but that's a different show, and you're not, you know. (laughs) You know, this show is about outrageousness. So I know going in, if I was hired to do a show about basketball, then every week I'd be having basketball players on and talking about that. Uh, You know, I couldn't do a show on politics if I was hired to do a show on basketball. Well, it's the same thing. If I'm hired to do a show about outrageousness, I know that every single day I'm going to be handed a, a number of guests who have done
2: something outrageous. Let me ask you um, again to shift back because your real passion is always going to be politics um, and you're so valuable in your views and um, I have a question you know you're a, obviously you're a big supporter of the Democratic Party. how do you view the Ryan and Romney plans for the country in comparison to Obama's and how do we get this country back on track because to me, and I'm not too far different than, than you are although, I think that, that in the world we walk in and, and private equity and other things like that, we were just torpedoed by the economy and, and, and probably no differently than anybody else. But, but it was just more real on a day-to-day basis with jobs and the things that we had to do to survive. How do we get this company back on track? How do we straighten it out and, number one, get the confidence back in people and the hope and the dreams that people need in order to be able to build build right
3: Well, I think the country is on the right track. We just haven't arrived at the station yet. Um, So, Mm -hmm. clearly, uh, if you look at, you know, four years ago, of course we're better off than we were four years ago. Four years ago, you'll remember – Right. The the entire economy was collapsing. People were losing their life savings, their 401K. You know, the, the uh, stock market was getting down to 600-something, right. were losing their life savings, their 401Ks. Uh, you know, thank God there wasn't a total run on the banks. Everything was falling apart. And, uh, you know, we were losing 750,000 jobs a month, a month. You know, now, obviously... You know, we, we put a ceiling under the, uh, uh, under the financial de- uh, debacle. And now all of a sudden the market's up to what? Over 13, uh, 1300. Uh, so it's doubled back up in its value again. So people's retirements and 401ks are looking better. Uh, you know, we were up over 10% unemployment. Now I think today it came out it's 8.1%. It- as I said, we haven't arrived to where we have to be. But clearly, now for the first time in my lifetime, um, all Americans will have health insurance. Um, no one can be denied uh, health insurance because of a preexisting condition. Young people will be able to be kept on their parents' uh, health insurance until they're 26 years yeah, old. Yeah, that's, uh, that's huge. Yes, there, there's, uh, there's not going to – you know, we're going to have the – You know, what Romney and Ryan are saying on day one, they're going to do away with uh, the the, uh, affordable health care, Obamacare. Really? What do you say to these families, you know, that have a child and all of a sudden another – an operation is needed and they're not going to be able to afford it because they've reached their limit on the insurance now under the new law – so you can't be cut from insurance. There there will be no uh, caps anymore. So as much as you need is what you'll get. And Romney's going to do away with that. We're going to cut Medicaid. So which, you know, what well, a third of Medicaid is, is taking care of our elderly that are in nursing homes and things like that. What about disabled children that are covered by Medicaid? We're going to do away with that. Um, we're going to You know what Romney and they're going to cut education, cut the Pell Grants that permit middle and lower income kid families to send their kids to college. Where's the future if you're not going to if you're going to say only rich families can send their kids to college? I mean the choice is unbelievable. I can't believe just as just as decent people that we think it's okay that, you know, in the year 2012 in the United States of America, we are going to take away insurance from people. We're going to take away education from people. Uh, You know, to me, the choice is so clear. And I think in watching this, you know, the speech last night in the convention this week, I think in the end Obama will win. But it's going to be close. It's going to be close because we live in an age of instant gratification. And it's finished with sickness. How about...
2: that I probably tend to look a little differently, certainly from a social program standpoint, I agree with you. But but how do you get these people to communicate and put away their agendas for a moment and put away, you know, all of the different, you know, I mean, I thought Clinton said something very interesting in his speech, which I actually was more taken by than Obama's. And that was, you know, I don't hate the Republicans. You know, I, I, oh, well, I, agree. Words, I
3: don't so. either. I, I don't either. But, but you know, right? I I certainly don't. But I wish it would get back to what the Republican Party was, and not what it not to the people who have taken over the party. You know, responsible Republicans are being defeated in their own party's primaries. Correct. Correct. When you have Republican leadership, which says um, our number one goal, and they said this, the day that. Um, Obama was sworn in. That night, there was a meeting in Washington, the night of the inauguration balls. There was a meeting in Washington with the Republican leadership where they stated that their number one priority is to make sure Obama doesn't get reelected. This is on his first day in office. Not We've got to get the economy back, not to make sure people have jobs, not we've got to make sure people have health insurance, not we got to make sure people uh, can get an education. No, our number one priority is just we'll do whatever it takes. We'll vote no on everything if we have to just to stop Obama. Well, the party's been hijacked. The Republican Party's been hijacked. Forget Democrats. It's not the Democrats that have knocked the Republicans out. It's the right wing that is not the responsible. And and do you think
2: that's ever happened before with a candidate? Because when you elect the president, you need to give that president an opportunity to be able to come into office office and, and be able to build a consensus and compromise and do those things. I agree with you. I think in that regard, there was such hatred. And such a determination. I, look, I, I don't want to just alienate the, the Tea Party here, but it was basically a very conservative, right-wing takeover of the Republican Party that I think drew everybody to the right. Because I do think there are a lot of—I know a lot of Republican uh, politicians who who want to find ways of compromise and find ways of, you know, it doesn't help to shut the economy down. It doesn't help to shut down Washington. No, or not no. Of a budget.
3: I, I I totally agree, and there is room for compromise. And in fairness to Obama, there were a lot of areas where he's willing to say he picked up some things that made from the Republicans and made some Democrats angry. And he says, I'm willing to do this. But the Republicans are saying, at least the the leadership is saying, you know, people that have taken Mm -hmm. over the party are saying no, 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 no to anything. Even if it's the same thing that the Republicans put in their own plan. You know, even when Ryan you know, in his own budget, put in exactly what Obama has put in, in terms of cutting the cost of Medicare without touching benefits, you know. And now, so they're accusing Obama of doing, which is exactly in their own budget, and they're doing it just because
2: it was introduced by a Democrat. That is
3: crazy. That is crazy.
2: Let me ask you, um, you were considering running for the U.S. Senate, I think it was in 2003, and decided against it. Um, what was your reason for not doing it? And do you have any plans to enter back into politics um, in the near future?
3: It's um, the, the reason for not doing it. In the end, you got to be able to pull the trigger and say, I'm doing it. And... Uh, I just couldn't pull the trigger. I'm, I wish I knew exactly why I didn't. There are moments I regret not having run now that I see what has happened since. Um, part of the reason was that the people that would run if I wasn't running or that would be, have been nominated, if, you know, uh would help me. I thought they were good people. You know, in the end, I just when you weigh everything and you weigh you know, for your family and and, and you just weigh it all. And whatever the reason was, and I wish I could psychoanalyze myself, I decided I didn't have to be in elective office to make a contribution. And so that run in the future you know I I never say there's no possibility but obviously as I get older the likelihood becomes less but you know it's in my blood and I got to tell you there is never a day uh, that it doesn't cross my mind or I don't have some discussion at home about it you know it's anyone who knows me personally will say that you know that's what my passion is so wait you know, that's you know, you, you
2: know I, think, yeah, I don't know. Roots. At some point I might, but it's not likely. Well you got some 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 very deep roots here and a couple of very close friends that certainly would love to see you. in my retirement. Run, <laughs>
3: if I ever run, Jim, you'll be one of the first five people I call.
2: <laughs> I hope so. I hope so. So <laughs> let me ask you, out of the three things that you've predominantly been involved with, and I could say television host, broadcaster, and political figure, what would you say you've Enjoyed the most and, and feel so, that you've had the best time, so to speak.
3: The best job I ever had was being mayor of Cincinnati. That was mm. that was the all-time great job. Um, obviously, I enjoy what I'm doing now. It's, been, it's fun. And, you know, it's not like if I didn't have this job, I would starve. I realize that. Um, so it, after a while, it gets beyond, you know, the money issue. Uh, I've been lucky in life. It just gets... It's a fun way to go to work. And I am pretty much a workaholic, so I enjoy the idea of having to get up and go someplace and do something. I enjoy performing. I mean that is part of I guess my personality. Uh you know, my wife always kids me about that. So, you know, I need I go down to the refrigerator at you know, three o'clock in the morning. I was in the refrigerator. <laughs> the light bulb goes on, and I do five minutes. So I, I enjoy I enjoy that. And that's. I wish I had a more sophisticated answer to it, but I enjoy performing. That, so I want I want to know because I've told
2: this story four hundred times. So we're standing in the back room of uh, the Coliseum downtown, and it's you and me and Bob Dylan. And Wasn't that great, I, Bob? for our listeners. You always told me that one of your great joys and one of your great, you know, desires was to meet Bob Dylan. And so you're giving a key to the city to one of the great of all time. I mean, obviously, right. iconic yep. and chain. so I remember and I've told this, the three of us were standing there for about the first minute. Nobody said anything. And then he kind of said, well, do you all want to drink? And you and I looked at each other and what was going through your mind? When you were standing there with Bob Dylan, and you were actually handing him a key to the city.
3: Well, for my generation, and for me, you know, Bob Dylan, you don't get more iconic than that. So I was awestruck. And remember, when you know, back then, I was when I was mayor. You and me, you know, we were what uh, thirty-three years old. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, so I was just a kid, and uh, but Dylan wasn't much older. And one thing that I. Mm -hmm. vividly remember. He had just come back from Nuremberg where he had done his big concert then. It was pretty controversial.
2: 500,000 people.
3: Yes. And so I wanted, obviously, to talk to him about all that stuff. What was amazing and what really struck me about him is that for the next 20 minutes, all he kept doing was asking me about what it was like to be mayor, various things that are going Mm -hmm. on politically. Mm -hmm. So it's like The discussion wasn't about, oh, my God, you're Bob Dylan. It was, let's talk politics and what happens in the city and isn't this crazy. And and I started to feel a little bit guilty because I realized, uh, you know, I, I was at that age where I loved all the new music and all that kind of stuff. So I would give, as mayor, keys to the city to all these rock stars I wanted to meet. I gave the key to the city to Linda Ronstadt, to the Eagles, to Eddie Money, to the Steve Miller Band, to uh, um, Dolly Parton, Kenny Rogers. It was Bruce Springsteen. It was it was it was like by the end of my term, I had run out of keys. I was trying to give out the combination, you know, twenty-seven to the right, fourteen to the left. It was like. <laughs> it was so much fun, and but that's really what my memory of, of it was, is that how engaging Dylan was about not talking about himself, but wanting to know what we were doing and what was happening here in Cincinnati and all that kind of stuff. And it was like, by the end of the
2: conversation, we were a couple of buddies just hanging exactly. out. Exactly. You know, I look at it and I say to myself, just one of the guys, you know, it's like to us, it was like bigger than life, but it was just like one of the guys. And my brother-in-law at that time had just done a Nuremberg uh, uh, concert and, you know, came back and it was like, I said, no, you got to get him to Cincinnati because Jerry Springer wants to meet him. So that will always go down and is always on my wall of fame and will always go down as one of the great moments in my life. And I was so proud to share that with you. Let me ask you, we have just a few minutes left. Um, what are some of the kind of, if you can point to it, one of the most difficult things you had to deal with in your life and one of the greatest things that kind of happened to you? Because, you know, we, we talked to this show goes into 187 countries and, you know, people pick it up and it's downloaded through iTunes and you can go to a current life and, and listen to it. And, you know, but I try to we try to leave this something for the listeners that they can take from it. Well, what would you say are the things that you had to overcome in your journey? And then the last question, because we only have a few minutes left, is kind of what do you see as the greater meaning of life? Whoa. <laughs>
3: yeah.
2: I know. I uh, ask that yeah, every show, okay. and I get great answers.
3: Um, well, the, uh, the toughest things in life are always the personal things, and uh, it's the... You know, uh, without going into detail, uh, you you know, the birth of, you know, uh, of my daughter, uh, of our daughter for, in the beginning, things didn't look good and she had some disabilities and, you know, that just trumped anything else that was going on. And as it turns out, you know what a happy ending, and Katie is now happily married. With uh, we have a grandson uh, who just had his fourth birthday, and it's just the best thing that ever happened to me. And, uh, so that, but, you know, so when I think of tough moments, you know, nothing compares with that. Uh, everything else is just the strategy. You figure out how to deal with it. It's all the business world or the political world. So that was the
2: toughest thing. How about the, uh, great, how about the, uh, and we got about 30 seconds, just kind of the greater meaning of life.
3: Uh, in make sure at least, something in this world or some people in your life are better off because you were in it. Well, uh, you know, great that's answer. probably it.
2: Uh, and well, also to, to, to take thank...
3: care of yourself, but each other as well. <laughs> well, I want to
2: thank Jerry Springer for sharing his journey with us. Uh, I've known him for three decades and you're a dear friend and I thank you for your time. I want to thank our listeners for tuning into a current life on voice of America variety channel. This is your host, Jimmy Gould, signing off. And please join us next Friday at 3 p.m. Eastern. Till next time, I wish each and every one of you a journey filled with hope, inspiration, success. And Jerry, to you, my friend, we're always there for you. We send you our love and my deep gratitude for you coming on the show today. You're great. I only have great, great thoughts about you. Thanks, Jim. Thank you, you my friend. All the best to you.
3: Bye-bye.
0: Thanks again for joining us for A Current Life on the Voice America Variety Channel. Please tune in to another great program with your host, Jimmy Gould, next Friday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time and 12 noon Pacific Time. We'll see you next week.
3: The stove, the refrigerator, all the pots and pans. The sink? Sure. Take the kitchen sink, too. Yeah, pretty much everything in the kitchen I could live without if I had to. Except, of course, my Keurig Brewer.
1: Who doesn't love their Keurig Brewer? It can brew the perfect cup of coffee, tea, and hot cocoa with just the touch of a button. All without a fuss and so little mess or cleanup. With over 250 varieties to choose from, it's no wonder your Keurig Brewer is the favorite thing in your kitchen. Visit Keurig.com for more info.